Hello and welcome to another episode of What's That Noise? The podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Podcasting from Bochum, Germany for the summer of 2018, I hope to bring you guys as many different perspectives as I possibly can. And today we do just that. We'll be sitting with Julia Rone, a colleague of mine who researches fake news, which we won't actually have any time to talk about today because we have so many other great things lined up for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. So here we are, volume two from Germany. I'm sitting here in my flat, which I would normally consider to be quite a big space, but it has shrunken considerably. I am no longer flying solo in Europe. I am joined by my lovely girlfriend who just recently arrived from Canada. You want to say hi, sweetie? Hey, have you done that thing? (laughs) Just starting, actually. Anyways, it's actually been really great having her here. And something that's been really helpful is that Christina, my partner, is Romanian. And Romania happens to border the nation that my new friend and colleague, Yulia, is from. So I've been able to dig into the background a little bit, which has helped me in some ways and made it more challenging for me and others. But anyways, let's talk a little bit more about Yulia. She was a lecturer at the University of Florence in Italy while she was finishing her PhD in social and political sciences. And in fact, she's away this weekend celebrating right now. So congratulations, Yulia. As a fellow here at the Center for Advanced Internet Studies, she is conducting a very fascinating research project that traces the patterns of fake news across Europe. But as I mentioned earlier, We're not actually going to have time to talk about this because we have so many interesting things to work through, one of which is the center itself. As I've mentioned before, if you're a researcher and you're interested in pursuing your work abroad, I highly encourage you to check out cais.nrw and have a look again at the call for applicants. Don't just apply once. Apply often, because they're always bringing in new research fellows like Yulia and myself. I've learned a little bit about Bulgaria, but not a lot. I know that Bulgaria happens to be one of the most southeasterly countries in Europe, right beside Turkey. When I got speaking to Yulia initially before the interview, what I expected to hear from her was how Bulgaria's history Under the Soviet sphere of influence, from 1944 until 1989, the year the Berlin Wall fell, and the year that Yulia was born, created abhorrent socio-economic conditions, the kind that I would have expected to dissolve in the 1990s. But in fact, and as we will find out, the opposite occurred. Bulgaria embarked upon a journey into participatory democracy in 1990, which actually introduced considerable social unrest that led to disproportionately high levels of crime, corruption, and violence. As Yulia will reveal, the average quality of life and overall economic standards dropped to levels lower than under communism, even well into the 2000s. Growing up in this transition period clearly left resounding impacts on my new friend and colleague, both professionally and personally, and particularly in the sense of refining her social and political sensibilities. In my estimate, her background and experiences traveling and studying across Europe fueled her with some very unusual and interesting perspectives on geopolitics, migration, spatial crises, and the always fun to talk about theory-praxis paradox that well, now self-evidently, so many academics across the world struggle with. As we're going to find out, growing up in Bulgaria, a country that borders five nations, Bulgarian culture by and large, and in Yulia's estimate, 
remained rather unaffected by them. Instead, Bulgaria underwent something of a cultural self-colonization that really challenges how I myself understand the notion of East versus West, which is a complex, intention-filled notion to begin with. And as you know, I love complex, tension-filled everything, but complexity isn't always easy. It makes us uncomfortable. But where there's discomfort, there is growth. Except when you're terrified to mispronounce someone's name on a podcast. Yulia Rone. Julia Rona? How do you pronounce it? Rone. 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 Yeah, fine. <laughs> it's fine. Is this a problem that you encounter when yeah. you travel? Rone. Rone? Rone. What else have you received? Julia Rone. Mainly Julia Rone. I think it's the universal. Anything else? That's it. And what about Julia? Julia is the correct one. When I studied in England, I said Julia, and then I was reproached by my friends that I have an identity problem and I should not make it easier for foreigners and I should insist on my Julia. Also because they were German, and so for them it's also Julia. <laughs> That's why they were more understanding. You were reproached? Yeah, they said that I am Julia and I should say Julia and not try to make it easier for English speakers. So. Yeah, but could they figure out how to say your last name, though? No. No, it took them ages. Is there anybody you've met in Europe that can actually say your name properly without trying and they can't be from Bulgaria? Uh, good question, no. No? No, but also in Bulgaria they don't pronounce properly because I'm a child of a mixed marriage, so it's a Latvian name. It's a Latvian name. So where are your parents from then? You have um, Latvian? My mom is Bulgarian, mm-hmm. with a bit of Macedonian, which but Bulgarian, and my father is half Latvian, half Russian. Oh, Okay. So all over the Soviet bloc. They met in Moscow. How did they meet in Moscow? What were they both doing there? My mom was studying there, actually. Yeah? Yeah. What was she studying? Uh, she was studying uh, linguistics and translation. And, yeah, she was there, I think, for five years, and then she made also a PhD. And my father was studying German literature. So both of your parents are scholars? Uh, my father is a journalist now. He's like the less serious one, but as men usually are. And did many of your friends growing up in Bulgaria have the same sort of situation? Were both parents really educated? Uh, I would say yes, because this is one of the good legacies of the socialist regime, that we had a very high level of education. So our educational system actually started collapsing in the 90s as a result of a series of yeah, misconceived reforms, I would say. But yes, so in Bulgaria, high education until very recently was not considered at all exceptional. So almost everyone had a like university degree, for example. Oh, wow. Fascinating. So this is something that I've, I've wondered about in anticipation of talking to you. Yeah. Because a lot of my preconceived ideas about what it was like to grow up in the Eastern Bloc mm-hmm. come from my partner, who's okay. Romanian. They came from my grandmother, who would identify as a white Russian. Okay. And they come from popular media. And we're so far away on the other side of the the friggin' planet, on the other side of the pond, so to speak, that we will, of course, hear stories from people once in a while. But this is definitely the first time I've met a scholar from the Eastern Bloc. So I would really love to hear a little bit more then. So our our listeners back in North America understand. I don't think many of them would have assumed that so many people would be so highly educated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was the case. So I think the socialist regime really invested a lot in education as it was part of its promise of building a different type of like socialist man or whatever. And of course, there were a lot of like problems during this period. I mean, there was definitely no free speech in the political sense, right? Uh, but a lot was done in terms of education, also women's rights. So another thing that I think was very impressive was the extent to which you had women participation, um, women's participation in the workforce. And this was, I think, one of the good things that are still remaining um, in our country, for example. They are slowly being dismantled currently, but yeah, what can we do? 
So what time period are we talking about that this is particularly prominent? Uh, 1945 till 1989. So this was the socialist period wow. in Bulgaria. And I didn't grow up in the Eastern Bloc. I was born exactly in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell and all these regimes fell all across uh, the East. So I actually grew up in the transition period, which was an interesting time to grow up because you had the remnants of the previous regime, uh, both in the good sense and in the bad sense. And then you had this kind of... Uh, fledgling democracy and attempt to basically democratize the country and also liberalize it in an economic uh, sense. And it was definitely a tough time to live in, but also interesting. What made it difficult for you uh, and your family? So I was a child and I think my parents definitely protected me from the difficulties of the period. It was just like if you see the GDP of Bulgaria in 99 and the GDP of Bulgaria in 2012, I think was the latest statistics, they're almost the same. So just the GDP of the country plummeted. It plunged uh, for almost 20 years until it gets back to that um, that period in time. Uh, there was also huge inflation and also it was very difficult in political terms as the former communist elite uh, tried to transform its power, its political power into an economic power. And it was also a period of, I would say, huge lawlessness. And you could see that on the street. I mean, it was pretty violent. But it was also exciting, I, th I would say, in terms of culture and people really feeling liberated. Because before that, you did not have this kind of like free arts, everyone being able to say what they want. And the 90s were a total boom for theater, music. It was a very creative period, a period in which I think almost one million people left. But the ones who stayed were very, very... Um, yeah, very creative because they felt this freedom and especially the generation that uh, was like 18 or 19 in these years. I was too little to, and too young to take part in So this. we're still talking about the, the period under Soviet influence? No, no, the 90s. So oh, the transition period in transition which I grew up. Period, right. And so I'm thinking about this cultural boom. Yeah. And I'm looking at this picture of the map and there's so many countries surrounding Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. Is this part of the reason why? I would say we share a very similar destiny with several of these countries, not with Greece, because Greece was, uh, in a sense, different from us um, in political terms, to say the least. But we share the similar fate as we were all parts of the same regime. And we had a lot of similarities in terms of like political rule, in terms of like how culture was being done, in terms of how, I don't know, the, the, the economy was uh, governed. But I think each of these countries followed its own path. Uh, and there wasn't such a huge contact. I actually don't know enough about our neighbors. I'm just starting to discover things that happened, for example, in former Yugoslavia. And I don't know almost anything about it. And this is scandalous, as we are really very <laughs> close to each other. Or about Romania, by the way. So I actually got to know things about Romania when I met Romanian people with whom I studied abroad. Right. So we're actually notoriously, I would say, ignorant about our own neighbors. We are always more interested in images and films from the West or like, I would say, the US, Canada, the UK. So I grew up knowing how the Central Park in New York looks like, for example, but not how my neighbors in the neighboring country live like. What about the rest of Europe, Western Europe? Yeah, we've always been interested in this. I think <laughs> there is a very interesting term by one of my professors. It's called self-colonization. And I think it was valid before the... Um, socialist regime and afterwards, so also in the transition period and nowadays. And basically the idea is that Bulgaria is one of those countries that got independent in the end of the 19th century. Uh, so we were a part of the Ottoman Empire and then we gained independence. We were never colonized, but we were not a colonizer. And so we never experienced colonial rule or anything like this. So we didn't know its oppressive sides. But we always read about like this kind of Western European ideal and we bought it completely. And in a sense, we self-colonized in, a, in, a, in cultural terms. We really believed everything that uh, like Western Europe was projecting as ideology. And I think it's still very much the case. We, we do tend to think of ourselves as more peripheral, etc. And I think it's more of a sense of an attitude uh, that then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy than of anything that reflects so much objective reality. Peripheral, but when we look at the map, I mean, geographically yeah. speaking, you're surrounded by Greece, Macedonia, Serbia, Romania, and Turkey. Yeah. And so a lot of ways, it's, it's not 
or perhaps it's peripheral in a European sense. But in terms of a point of access, like your proximity to Istanbul is really fascinating because you have so many people yeah. moving out of that part of the world. Thus far in the conversation, we've talked about the West, yeah. right? We've talked a little bit about Bulgaria being peripheral, but we have the rest of the world mm -hmm. literally mm -hmm. at a connection point to your home country. What was it like for you reflecting on that maybe as an adult and, and growing up in Bulgaria? So in our historical uh, science or like in the whole historiography, we have this perception of the countries being at, like on the crossroads, right? Because we are between the East and the West. So this is a very prominent thing that we learn about in high school. Also because Bulgaria is a very old country. And so there were always these tribes coming from somewhere, passing through our land, etc. Uh, by the way, this was uh, pointed out as a potential reason why we are more economically backwards, because uh, really so many people passed through this region that there was never much of a stability or like a stable regime that was able to build up, etc. It's just a hypothesis. So as in everything related to history and politics, it depends. It might not be the case. <laughs> but my point is, yes, we always talk about this. And it's very important for our self-perception. But it doesn't mean that we know a lot about our neighbors and that we look towards the East. I think this is happening more and more now, but more due to the rise of China, for example, than to like the proximity of our neighbors. We, we have the same foods, for example, as Turkey. We have a very big Turkish uh, minority in Bulgaria. Um, but we'd never consider them as like a, f a foreign culture or like we live with them on an everyday level. We might be afraid of them in a political sense because they're a huge country next to us. But it has never been, I think, overly problematized. In our cultural imagination, I think we are rather torn between Russia and the West and not so much by, by like, our neighboring countries. It's a funny tension. When I was finishing up my PhD, I spent quite a bit of time reading Edward Said, yeah. learning about Orientalism. And there was this fascination with looking towards the East in obviously problematizing ways, but also as um, a means of creating a frame of reference upon which Western prosperity and exceptionalism is constructed. We can't really look further west because we're looking at Asia, right? So eventually we're going to meet at the same points if we're looking around the globe. But is there something else to looking to the east that was really interesting or confusing for you growing up as a Bulgarian? Or perhaps in the stories that you've encountered from your neighbors? Yeah, I would say as we are always torn between us wanting to be close to like Russia. And I again, I think this is an important reference point for us. The East is more like this, our Slavic friend, because Bulgaria is a Slavic nation. And then you have those who want to look, look more towards the West, perceived in terms of Germany, France, England, most so you have different strengths within those people. And this is an ongoing tension, and it's constantly in our politics. Uh, and it is a source of a lot of confusion, also because of the way it overlaps with distinctions such as the left and the right. So. As, as I think I mentioned before, the Bulgarian left is very much pro-Russia uh, because it's still like the remnant of the Communist Party in the past. And it's more conservative, it's also more paradoxically Christian, while the Bulgarian right is more, um, how, would I, how would I formulate this, transatlantic, so more pro-US and Western Europe, and hates everything that comes from the West. It's also more uh, culturally progressive. But at the same time, it's very economically neoliberal. So it's a very strange mix and confused wow, situation yeah. of like viewpoints. And so every time I talk to my friends from different countries about the left and the right, I always need to explain what exactly this means in our context. Because it's refracted and it's completely different. Precisely because of this constant tension uh, for us. You know, the... In our identity. My, my co-host and my good buddy Derek, Derek Silva, would tell you that I love tensions. <laughs> I teach through tensions. I build my syllabi okay. off of tensions. And I think one of the problems of working with tensions, professionally speaking, especially when you're teaching, is that you, you sort of commit the people you're working with to thinking in dichotomies, mm -hmm. binaries, you know, left, right, up, down, east versus west, as we've been discussing. But there's also a, a dimension of north-south here. Yeah. And I'm, I'm getting a sense of it because... Russia is to the east, but more north. 
and to the south, we're looking at a completely different part of the world. Does this factor into the confusion that you've been talking about in Bulgaria? Or is it really just a, an east-west thing? I think, politically speaking, it's east-west. So, for example, when you had the Greek crisis in Europe, Bulgaria definitely did not side with Greece, which would be a... So you have these, like, southern European states, mm-hmm. which are Portugal, Italy, Spain, and Greece. And Bulgaria absolutely did not side with Greece uh, when this crisis was going on, like, several years ago, in 2015, I think, as uh, the other Eastern European countries. So I would say, for us, this tension that I described is the most important one. But again... I'm actually pretty fascinated by what you tell me because I have been also thinking about this and also in terms of like, it's a very bold jump from one topic to the other, but I actually like tensions. I really hate it when people make you choose one of the two because I think if one is creative enough with tensions, you can actually achieve much more. So you can exploit your position between the East and the West in order to get better deals, etc. You can... You can establish your own identity by not choosing between the two, by just playing along with the tension and keeping it. And I'm really, and I do believe that we have to have a vision of our own national identity that does not conform to choosing one of the two. But this requires a very strategic thinking. And yeah, just one other thing that I was thinking about. Sorry, I, I you really can take like the conversation this. anywhere no, you want, I especially if you're going I to speak. validate how much I like tensions. <laughs> yes. No, but because I was actually working on a project on the decline of the West, um, led by a Canadian researcher. That's right. We were discussing this just yeah. a few weeks ago. And when I was reading on this, there was something brilliant. It was a very good article by a guy who was comparing what is currently going on between China and the US to the rise of Germany uh, and its relationship to the UK before the First World War. And basically this guy's uh, thesis, I forgot his name, but I, th- I think it was very, very clever. He was trying to explain that while you had a lot of tension and uh, insecurity in terms of like who was in alliance with whom, was Germany with Austria or with Russia, uh, was England with Germany or not, etc. The situation was rather peaceful. So everyone was constantly super anxious. Are they signing a contract behind our back? What's going on, etc. But actually you had peace. In the moment you had you know, a country assigned to a definite camp, it was clear that even the smallest provocation to one of the allies would provoke a war. And this is precisely what happened. And so basically what this author was saying is that we need to keep the tensions going on right now. And we don't need a, like this kind of standoff uh, between China and US. We need a, an insecurity situation because it is actually much more productive than any attempt to divide the world into clear camps and to make countries choose. Because in the moment you do this, you actually make conflict unavoidable. And tension, but I would even say a multipolar tension, so not even tension between two sides, but like a constant sense of tension between all players is what keeps us stable. And I really like this. The the author called it normality. For him, the tension state and the state of anxiety is the normal one. And I I, I actually like this idea. I can't pinpoint why, but I, I was very impressed when I read about it. It's a really fascinating thought and observation line. When I was talking about tension earlier, I was yeah. talking about it in a binary. Okay. And now you've made it a heck of a lot more complex and fascinating, haven't you? Which is great because complexity can be extremely enriching for us, especially as scholars. Yeah. So you and I are here sitting in the lounge at Kais in Bochum, Germany, and as scholars who are both very receptive to interdisciplinary scholarship, we value grayness. We, re- we really yeah. do value complexity. It's also uh, a great way to think about theory in a really novel way. I think it can diversify methodology. But, 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 when you enter into popular discourse or public discourse, Mm -hmm. when you engage with media narratives, complexity is really problematic. True. Really, really problematizing for narrative. And so how how can you reconcile? This is just us, like, having some brain fun here. Mm. How do we reconcile... The idea of tension being valuable when you're trying to script a history, when you're trying to talk about um, the political climate in a country like Bulgaria. Yeah, that's a super tough question, and it's a super important question. And I mean, I do believe that complexity is important, and we have to keep it in mind. And here, I think actually, for example, if you think about the scandal with the Russian interference in the U.S. elections, everything that happened was reducing 
complexity and having this like very cold war binary you know opposition between the US right. and Russia yeah. and actually what happened was much more complicated much more difficult to establish etc uh, but media really like this kind of uh, opposition and simple stories and I think in the long term this actually makes politics much more complicated it's it's more difficult to keep tensions in mind but I think it's more productive and it's more responsible and and I mean it also in in a personal sense, I would say, because you asked me about confusion and what I'm confused about. And the truth is, I'm confused about everything. I was very <laughs> self-assured. I was even called judgmental once and uh, where it was a very right observation. But I'm actually getting less and less uh, sure about stuff and less and less judgmental. And I'm trying to learn how to live with tensions and insecurities. And especially because it is so difficult to find a secu the secure path, like any type of stability in life, you actually have to learn to live with tensions, otherwise you'll go crazy. Like, you want a simple resolution, for example, I don't know, I want to have a job and I want to know that I would be here for this period of time and this would happen. But it really doesn't depend on me, and no matter how hard I try to like reduce tension, I can't. So the best thing you can do is accept uncertainty, embrace, embrace it, it, and not, yeah, not panic or try to simplify stuff because in a lot of ways, I feel like I set us up for this conversation point because I asked you earlier um, a question about your comfort as a scholar okay. and how much going through graduate school and getting your PhD may have played a role in you feeling less certain and less secure about what you know. So not necessarily about yourself, mm -hmm. but also about everything yeah. going on in and around you. So... I, I want to go back to a comment I made, if you don't mind, last week. I think it was the week, the week before last. And I said to you, you strike me as an extremely confident scholar. I watched you give a presentation that was fantastic. And it was bulletproof. And you didn't break a bead of sweat once. You were totally on the ball. And now you're telling me this. So what's what's happened? Yeah, I think I'm just not confident, but I appear confident, which is a good strategy. Probably it's the better option than being confident and actually appearing <laughs> confident. No, but I would say so. First of all, again, because of the like heritage of Bulgaria and because of the very wide availability of actually higher education, I think for... For many people at home, having a PhD is not such a big deal. So it's you know, we are full of people with PhD who like drive cabs, etc. So it's a very different attitude mm. toward education than the one I observed in the like Anglo-Saxon world, for example, the UK. And I think this wide availability of education, on the one hand, made me more. Uh, I don't perceive it as such a big deal. Let's put it this way, because just a lot of people I know, and it's not only my like environment. It's actually widespread. It is declining, by the way, at home. But so people have this kind of more unserious attitude towards education at home. So that's the first thing. And second, of course, I'm much more... Uh, like, I'm not confident about the things I know. And I discovered many more things that I have to read about. And I'm a complete idiot when it comes to mathematics, physics, and whole fields of knowledge. And I actually think this is very bad. But the way in which I'm more um, unconfident now is it unconfident or inconfident? Something else I'm not confident about. <laughs> Which is the correct version? Unconfident? Un unconfident, yeah. Okay. De-confident, de not confident? I'm going to get a tweet about this later, and okay. someone's going to correct okay. me. I, it doesn't matter. I take unconfident. We know what you mean. But I'm more unconfident in the sense that I think the way the academic world is currently structured also makes us unconfident because you, you have to constantly validate yourself and like apply for this, apply for that. Uh, panic whether you will get accepted or not, uh, which on the one hand is good because probably more people get accepted to different positions, etc. But on the, other, on the other hand, every year you should do something else. And every year you're worrying, am I good enough? Maybe there is someone who is better than me, etc. And I think in this sense, my lack of confidence is also very much structured by what I experience uh, after my PhD. And of course, you know that it's going to be like this. I mean, I, I, I have read articles and like it's a constant topic, academic precarity. But I think that when you go through it, it's really, it really leaves an impact on you. And, and I think that is the sense in which I'm less confident, not only about myself, I'm less confident about the way academia is working currently. Because I always had this like almost idyllic notion of like sitting and reading and talking to students and 
I don't know, I just have fun reading. I enjoy doing this. But you almost can't afford doing this because of all the other things you do around it and applications and stress. And and this makes me less confident. I was less confident whether I want to remain an academic. Now I know I want to do it basically because I like it and actually I can't do anything else. So it's a very practical reason. But I'm not certain this is the best way to do things. Which Which way isn't the best way? Uh, these constant stress applications, short contracts. I don't know whether it's the same in Canada, but at least in the EU, it is very much based on like short contracts and you're applying constantly for different stuff. I am confident that at least 50% of our listeners are going to know exactly what okay. you're talking about. This is not unusual in North America. It's okay. a very, very specific problem, actually. I can't actually think of anybody that has gone through grad school in the last 20 years and hasn't said something similar. Okay. It's really damned hard to get a full-time job, especially in a country like this, because of the, what, what do they call it, the hab, 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 habilitate? In German, you mean? Yeah. Uh, habilitation, ha I have no idea. Habilitation. Yeah. That's basically where, um, if you're trying to get a PhD, you have to produce a second dissertation. Yeah. So let's just get this down square so everybody understands. Okay. For people who don't know, and you tell me if it's different, mm -hmm. um, especially having done your PhD. Well, you did your PhD in, in Italy. In Italy, in yes. Okay, so you'll tell me afterwards yeah. if it's different in Italy. But um, in Canada, generally speaking, in the social sciences or humanities, mm -hmm. and this is also the case in most programs in the United States, you will do about a year and a half to two years of coursework. Okay nine months to maybe 16 months or so of comprehensive examinations where you study two or three fields or subfields really extensively. Okay. Then you write some so. exams and sometimes there's an oral defense and that essentially establishes your teachables. Mm -hmm. And then anywhere from like two to a bazillion years or whatever <laughs> it takes to finish your thesis, which is your dissertation. And those can range from like a hundred and I don't know, 15 pages up to 350, 500 okay. pages. Depends on the project and the committee and so on and so forth. So start to finish, you know, if you're finishing around four to five years, that's really good. At my home university, York, the average completion time is like six and a half to seven and a half years. Okay. And that's another story yeah. for another time. But that's essentially what's involved. In Germany, as far as I understand, you need to do all of that then do another thesis on top of it, and you have six years to do it. Okay. And if you don't finish it within that six years, and you do not find a full-time job within that six years, you are no longer eligible to become a full-time professor. Very tough. I didn't know this about Germany, actually. Damn, I was really hoping you were going to say yes so that you could validate for me, <laughs> no. because I need that validation. We have to live it in security. I can't even say the word properly. Hab, 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 what is Habilitat it? I don't know. Habilitation. I don't know. Okay, so tell me about doing your PhD in Italy. Yeah, doing my PhD in Italy was super nice. You need four years there. I think they tried to make it for three years, but no one could achieve it. So they went back to four years. Derek so. Silva might be the only person I know who has ever done his PhD close to that. Okay. Yeah, but it's very pleasure-loving. I think I was a complete workaholic before going to Italy, and it really corresponds to all cliches you have about it. People do listen to, like, loud music, Eros Ramazzotti. They, like, <laughs> argue and love each other very loudly. It's and they sunny. dance on the roofs at night. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it conforms to all cliches. And I actually really, really enjoyed being there. The only problem with Italy is that actually they have no jobs. So most of my Italian friends are going to North Europe. Uh, and that's the thing. So it, it is a fairy tale. It's really, really very nice. But then the chance of staying and finding a job in Southern Europe and in Eastern Europe, by the way, uh, is very low. And so most of the people I know who are in the academic field are going to the north and not only in the academic field in general. Uh, so it's perfect, but it's very difficult to, to have the perfect life there. And not only as a foreigner, also as a... Hmm. Also as a local. I have a friend named Fallon Bowman, big shout out to you, Fal, who applied to do her PhD in Italy. And I think there were only a handful of institutions that would have allowed her to do this work. And I'm sorry, Fal, I can't quite recall what it is that you're applying to do. I think it may have been uh, ancient languages or, or archaeology. I think it's probably the latter and not the former. And it was really, really tough for her. Really, really tough. And it wasn't just about like finding a job after. It's just about like 
getting in. Okay. So three years is a lot of pressure to get a degree done. And is it generally the same structure, like the way I described the Canadian PhD? Uh, so we don't place so much emphasis on teaching. So the place where I was was rather special in the sense that it was only a graduate school. And you only had research. So we didn't teach. We started teaching only in the last year. and Oh, I see. Because we asked and we actually wanted to do it. And in that sense, it was mainly research. We had classes in the first year and then fewer classes in the second year. And then you are completely free only to write. Um, so that's that's the structure. So much shorter, I would say, than the typical North American PhD. Was there anything about doing your PhD in Florence that established the ideal for you, aside from what you've already described about, you know, sitting around and reading and just teaching? Did you have a lot of significant time to do that? Yes, and very beautiful gardens. And you could really, I, I spent most of my time there reading in a garden wow. and talking to people. And it was also very much non-competitive in the sense that each one of us was doing a different topic. And this is really nice because you don't feel such pressure. Uh, and you can actually talk to people and, and enjoy life. It was very much of a bubble, I must say, because we were all foreigners in Italy with very few Italians. And so I think by the end of it, there were a lot of people whom... Like, they didn't know Italian. And if you ask them who is the president of Italy, they could not respond. And I think that made me interested in this <laughs> phenomenon of traveling around. Because you go to another country as an academic, but you always remain somehow detached. And I think that is what made me think that it might be actually a good idea to go back home and do something where I belong to and in a place where I know the language and I have a basic intuition about the political reality. Because... I loved Italy and Italians are extremely nice people. They're extremely friendly and exactly again, exactly as you expect them to be. But as a foreigner, I felt I am not contributing to this society. So it was a great opportunity for me, but I think all of us, we were leftist, of course, and like very progressive, but more on in terms of words, in terms of actually doing something for a community. Yeah, we didn't. And I think that if you want to do something that is really progressive and nice or like good for even a bunch of people, you should try to do it. You could probably do it abroad, but you should pay more attention to integrating. And we were constantly worried about our thesis, what we are going to do next. And again, we come to this academic structure that pressures you to to perform, but only in a particular way. And not always in the most meaningful way, I would say, in a human sense. I'm going to ask you another hard question. Okay, let's see whether I can respond. As long as it's not related to English language. <laughs> well, you might have to respond in English because unfortunately my, my access to other languages is fairly limited. It's a theory meets praxis question. Okay. To what extent should academics apply their research in a practical way? Good question. Uh, I would say to begin with, uh, professors in ethics definitely should apply their research. <laughs> I think we all know the example of uh, professors of ethics behaving in highly unethical ways. But no, apart from this, I do believe that I do believe that we have to be relevant. And I know that this is like everyone knows this, and it is also being quantified and measured as an impact factor in changing society, etc. But apart from this, like very quantitative measurements, I I do believe we have to do something for other people. Otherwise, I think it's very meaningless. How exactly we do it? It depends the best way we can do it. I mean, not everyone can be like a passionate journalist or a community organizer. Mm. And some people are actually just contributing the best by doing their research and providing some good authoritative information. It depends. I think it depends on a person-by-person -person basis. But I think without this, we are really very detached. And... And, okay, and if we accept that someone knows that they're detached, if I'm doing, I don't know, ancient languages and translating some very ancient important author i know that i'm doing it for the scholarship and i'm fascinated by my subject and that's my life and that is perfect but social sciences to like just talk random stuff about revolution and oh this is the capitalist system and then not doing anything about anyone but pursuing only their own career because otherwise they wouldn't survive i wouldn't survive that i find slightly problematic do you think marx would have written the communist manifesto if he wasn't paid <laughs> Probably not, but... <laughs> this is a serious point of tension for me. Not the Marx thing. The tensions are coming back, I see. The tensions are coming back. They're slightly... So they're, they're going to find a way back no okay. matter what. I have it, like, earmarked somewhere in the back of my brain. So here we are. 
This was a source of tension for me. Theory mm-hmm. meets praxis. When do you or should you ought to apply the work that you're doing in a practical, meaningful way for society and the betterment of people around you? Because when I went through grad school, it just so happened that a lot of the seminars I took spent quite a bit of time disentangling capital C, capital T, critical theory from lowercase C and T, critical theory. And for people who aren't familiar, we're talking about the difference between um, an intellectual attitude that emerges in the 20th century, predominantly from Frankfurt. It's not constrained to Frankfurt anymore, where a bunch of neo-Marxists had found ways to critique the way other scholars were doing research. And now there's a distinction between that sort of neo-Marxist identification with what we call lowercase ct critical theory in the sense that there ought to be a capacity for intellectuals to critique work without prescribing a political belief, without falling prey, some might say, to indoctrinating. In other words, or perhaps more simply, part of the job of a scholar is not to push policy. It's not to tell society the right way to go. It's to identify the gaps. It's to identify the issues that people haven't talked about and leave it on the table and move forward. What comes up in your mind when I'm talking about these distinctions in this way? Interesting. Yeah. I think... I'm not certain whether I would address this precise distinction. But again, taking things on a very personal level. Um, I, I, so I, I studied social movements and protests, etc. And there were huge protests because of like all types of issues. So in Bulgaria in 2013, there was a mass wave of protests. It was part of this larger protest cycle after the financial crisis. So we had protests in uh, like um, the MENA region, uh, in Egypt, Tunisia, etc. You had then the protests in Spain, in Dignados, then Occupy, etc. And part of this very big global wave were the Bulgarian protests. Uh, and the first wave of Bulgarian protests was about high electricity bills. The second was against corruption and more like this kind of um, mm-hmm. citizen framework of putting it. And I did research on these pro- protests, right? And I wrote about it and, and I tried to explain why, by the way, left-wing uh, interpretations were completely absent in both uh, types of protests, both against electricity bills and against corruption. Because everywhere you had this kind of anti-austerity frame, uh, we are the 99%, while in Bulgaria it was very nationalist and very right-wing, but you didn't have any left-wing. And I think it was an important thing to observe, right? But I wrote this while living in Italy <laughs> and applying for places somewhere outside of my country. While people were protesting for real problems. Uh, as an academic, I think I did my job okay, right? It's maybe not the best interpretation, but it's some kind of interpretation. And it pointed to a gap also in the practice of the people who protested. Uh, but I feel that if I want to do something and if I, for example, note that there are no left wing um, frames or narratives, I can also do something about it. And then on a very personal level, I, like the last seven months I spent at home. And so we started doing a reading group with like completely random people, some were academics, some were not, some were people who actually work in call centers. The majority of the young population now in Bulgaria works in call centers. So people with whom I have studied in my BA theory and history of ideas work in call centers. And I find this outrageous. This is the only job you can do. It's a completely mechanical, uh, repetitive job, but you can't find anything else. And so with all kinds of people, people who do these boring jobs, people who are actually like very academically tempted, people who are absolutely not but find some problems in the current system, we started reading books. And and it's super fun. And it's really interesting. And we try to find a new language to talk about stuff because we don't really have a progressive left-wing uh, movement, ideas, language. The left wing, as I mentioned earlier, is occupied by this like very conservative old party. And young people have no way to express themselves at all. And for me, and this is something super small, it's, it's not revolutionary, etc. But I do believe that if I want to do something, I should do it there where my community is. And I can, of course, identify a lot of things, but most of our current academics are abroad. A lot of Bulgarian academics are in foreign countries. And there is no one at home to actually do the work and talk to people. And so you have this brilliant critique, not mine, but like my colleagues, 
who really notice, yeah, this is a problem, that's, that's not right, oh my God, what's going on? And then you have people on the ground who actually never read this. They can never have access to these articles because they are either behind like walled gardens or paywalls or whatever, or because <laughs> they are in English, a very simple mm -hmm. distinction. And, and those people watch the horrible media and they have a completely different view and they end up hating the so-called liberal elites, even though if these people actually want to do something nice for them. So yeah, for me, very simple solution. I think that the most useful thing I could do is to go back and to try to talk to people who would not understand English, for example, about stuff that I care about and try to show why their problems are first not unique. A lot of people in Europe share the same problems. And second, what can be done about it? And if they don't want to like accept my explanation, they're more, more than welcome. But at least I will have tried to have a conversation. And I think in terms of theory and practice, just enriching the conversation, getting more participants, that's super important. And especially because, again, we have this situation in which a lot of Bulgarians are abroad. So our academics are not in our own country. And they don't write in our own language, they write in English. And they write for a foreign audience, for a very select audience. And yeah. Fascinating. So a very resounding what you do ought to be applied. Yeah. Am I doing it? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm thinking well, about... Well, hold on a second. I mean... I'm thinking about doing it, but that's again another insecurity. I really think that this is the right thing to do. Could I find a job? Am I ready to work in a call center in order to actually do what I want to do? I don't know. Another attention. But hold on a second here. You just finished your PhD. How, how many months has it been? Two? Three or four. Three or four months yeah. since you finished your PhD. And you're feeling insecure about whether or not you're going to be able to apply what you've learned in a meaningful way. Yeah. I mean, no... And get paid. And get paid. Because I, I actually believe that we need to survive. Well, thank goodness for KAIS, because <laughs> yeah. it's uh, allowing us both to have really excellent summers. I think what you're sharing with us is extremely indicative of the kind of pressures that exist across the globe for anybody trying to make it through the academy. Mm. As I just mentioned, it was strange for me trying to develop a sense of identity as a scholar over the course of the last five years getting my PhD specifically because of that tension. Should I be critiquing? Should I try to remain neutral so that I can protect my reputation mm -hmm. as a critic? Which is very important to a lot of Canadian scholars. To some of the most successful and most progressive when it comes to theory and philosophy, theoretical uh, enrichment, absolutely, it's a must, especially in the realms of security. Okay, yeah. Especially so. But, 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 it's also become exceedingly clear to me that I can't just sit around and have a conversation with myself and words on text. And in many ways, just being here in Germany with you and Kais and so many of our wonderful fellows who I hope will also join us on this show have taught me that there is a real necessity it's not just about thinking and wondering and uh, levying critique so people can pick it up and use yeah. it if they want to, which they probably won't because nobody reads what we write anyways, right? Um, Hopefully at least one person we can read <laughs> each other's stuff. I, I've wondered if things, right? I've wondered if some of this problem is because of a crisis over space. Europe is really small. Really, really small. As I've identified with Max on a previous episode, I think I could fit, not I can, but I mean, <laughs> like if you gave us a map, yeah. not personally, I'm not Superman or nothing like that, although I wish I was, because I'd certainly make more money. Um, I could fit Germany inside of my province of Ontario about three times. What? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I've never had idea of, yeah. How I've big is Bulgaria geographically? Ah, smaller than Germany. Much smaller, smaller than Germany. Much smaller than Germany. Oh, I have Germany. to pull up my map again and have a look. So in terms of population, I know Germany is around 82 million. Bulgaria was 9 million and has now shrunk to 7 million because 7 of immigration and low birth rate. That's yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. There are more people in the greater Toronto area than your country. Yeah, I think also like in London even alone. But 
quick, so I, I have Bulgaria pulled up on a map now, and it, just by eyeballing this, it looks to be a third of the size of Germany. Could be. I haven't done the exercise, but yeah, it's definitely smaller. You can fit it several times, probably. So the what I'm talking about then, this crisis of space, is not necessarily something that's going to register with our new Bulgarian listeners. But as we progress further into Western Europe, I mean, this is the hot-button topic right now. Yeah. But again, you have a lot of inequality between regions, and so... Let's put it this way. Bulgaria has a lot of space. It's not a big country, but there are smaller European countries, like Slovenia, definitely, Denmark, maybe even Austria is smaller. Um, But there is not enough work. So actually a lot of Bulgarians migrate abroad. And you have, and I think this is fascinating and very scary and very beautiful, and I don't even know what the word would be to describe this. There are whole villages in Bulgaria that are completely abandoned. So you would go to a village and you have all these empty houses. Yeah, yeah. Empty houses completely left. So you have this kind of uh, ghost villages in Bulgaria where people don't live because there is no work. So within Bulgaria, you have the poorest region within the EU. It's northwest Bulgaria. And people just don't stay there. So space, there is plenty of space. And we actually have a lot of forests and fertile land. It's a very beautiful country. But economically, it's totally devastated. And... Of course, our GDP is rising in the last few years, but compared to other European countries, it's lower. And a lot of people prefer to go and work in the West, uh, crowding it even additionally, uh, than to stay there because they just can't find work. Or if there is work, it's very low paid because of particular decisions of our employers, etc., who insist that this way our competitiveness is higher, which I... Yeah, don't personally agree with. But the result is that we have low wages and a lot of abandoned space. How, I don't know if you can answer this question. So if you can, I apologize in advance. But how would Bulgaria's GDP fare against neighboring countries? Lower. So it is the poorest country within the EU. And in a sense, it was expected that joining the EU would um, improve this. But it didn't happen because it also coincided with the financial crisis. And yeah, in the end, it is getting higher, but it's definitely much lower than everywhere else. And this is due mainly to political reasons. I mean, there is not, I think, a grand strategy of how to deal with it. And so, yes, we have space, but we are losing people. That's a very different kind of crisis than the one that I was referring to a moment ago, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Ever since I've arrived... I've been routinely hearing people in the center and outside of the center. I think more outside of the center, really. You've managed to talk to locals. (laughs) I'm talking to locals, and I'm even attempting to use my German a little bit beyond ordering a beer once in a while. I thought you'd be impressed with that. The narrative, the national narrative, and the state-level narrative about where to put immigrants, where to put refugees, seems to be something that I hear routinely. Okay. And again, this is a very different kind of problem than the one you're explaining with regards to space. Mm-hmm. It's a different kind of crisis of space, really, in, in Bulgaria. I just looked at Bulgaria's GDP. And because, of course, Google is going to spit the numbers at me in U.S. dollars, <laughs> per capita, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $7,300. Okay. Canada is 42000 Okay, huge difference. And I think, I'm actually going to look this up really quickly, because the state that we're in right now, North Rhine-Westphalia, is really, really comparable to Canada. Canada. Okay. And of course I can't get it because it's translating everything (laughs) on me. But the state of North Rhine-Westphalia, which is considered the second most populated state in Germany, which is... Um, often discussed in national narratives in terms of being overcrowded and potentially Mm -hmm. overrun because there is no national plan or state-level plan for dealing with refugees. Um, Yeah, they're they're producing in the neighborhood of Canada's GDP. And this is all making me wonder, again, about purpose of our work and what it is that we ought to be doing moving forward. So... Why don't we try to look forward a little bit here to wrap off the show? 
I'm getting a very strong sense from you, mm-hmm. Yulia, that you're going to be heading back to Bulgaria soon. And you're from Sofia. Yes. So when it comes to crises of space and crises of orientation and tensions in political discourse, political climate in Bulgaria, where do you see yourself, let's just imagine in the best case scenario, doing work for Bulgaria and perhaps for Europe? Very tough question. Let me complicate the question even a bit more. Oh, I'd love. love for you to do that. Love, love, because my boyfriend is not Bulgarian. So this makes going to Bulgaria a bit harder for me. Ah. So again, we have a tension between what I think is right <laughs> to do in one sense and what is right to do in the other sense. So, yeah, I have no idea. But definitely I want to do something. But like, not to do something for my country or world peace, because this sounds always very ridiculous. I want to do something practical and something in terms of community building. But you seem very passionate about the lived experience of Bulgarians. Yeah, yeah. But the question is that I don't believe that one person can do so much. I believe in communities trying to do things together. And in this sense, I do believe that just like changing the economic debate and like the terms of the economic debate, this would be extremely important and doing it with other people. So creating a community and... I still have no idea whether I would do it like 100% from there or traveling and coming back. The good thing about Europe being small is that you can actually go home and travel. Um, What do I want to do? Yeah, I want to actually reintroduce some leftist discourse in the country and progressive leftists, not this kind of old communist type of... uh, I think this is very necessary. Not American alt-left. I I don't even know what this presupposes, but let's say (laughs) to be on the safe side, no. And in terms of Europe, well, there are a lot of debates what to do in terms of Europe, because one of the problems is this integration between very strong economies and very weak economies that actually makes the weak economies weaker. Uh, On the other hand, Europe has done brilliant stuff when it comes, for example, to data protection, a field that you know very much better than I do, Um, but also like social rights, etc. So it's a very difficult question. It's not a question only for me. It's a question about a lot of people. And I would not go, I think, uh, in politics, because at least on the basis of uh, observations of recent academics going to politics, it's a disaster. If you think of all the technocratic governments of Italy, etc. But I would try, I think that is the most reasonable thing and the thing I'm certain about, regardless of geographical positioning, uh, profession, love, etc. I want to work towards just translating some important authors in Bulgaria and talking to people, making them well known, trying trying to start a conversation. Sometimes this is very hard, but I think it's very necessary. It's not glamorous. I'm not saving the country or anything like this. But I do believe that we need to have a conversation in the right way. We need to be able to identify the problem and then try to solve it. And that happens very slowly and with a lot of work on the ground. So wherever I am, at home or not, I would definitely try to do this. And if it takes traveling, whatever, I, I, I think that is what I think is meaningful to do. And, yeah. It's impossible to follow that up. That was remarkably astute and very, very insightful. I want to thank you very, very much for coming on the show. And Thank you for inviting me. I actually did not think that I have anything interesting to say, but I think you're a very good host in the sense of oh, <laughs> making me talk much. about tensions. And Do you know we've been talking for almost 53 minutes? Okay. No, I didn't. We haven't even talked about your research yet. Good. (laughs) God, no, let's spare this to people. Are you on Twitter? Uh, Yeah. Do you want to give yourself a shout out? Uh, Yes, but I don't remember what my Twitter was. I think it's at Julia Rone, but yeah, I think that's it. How about I look it up for you later? Perfect. Thank you. And in the meantime, I'm going to reflect back on this really fascinating conversation. My goodness, you are so easy to talk to. I would really, really like to get you back on at some point in the summer, if that sounds all right with you. Cool, I'll try to think about more things that confuse me. (laughs) Certainly there will be plenty of them, so. (laughs) Well, thanks again for joining me. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for joining us for another episode of What's That Noise? If you enjoyed the show, give us a follow at Thomas N. Cook and at WTNCast. Or if you have any complaints, you can also hit us up at Derek Grimm. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Google Play Music. And until next time, keep listening to the noise.